Hi everybody, it's Steve Weir, Grace Point's Pastor of Arts and Communication, and I'm here to say welcome, or welcome back, to the Grace Point Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or on our YouTube channel. Feel free to check out our website for all the latest information about everything going on here at Grace Point. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step toward becoming a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Enjoy. It is a joy to be able to open the Word of God with you all this morning. I want to share some fears that I, when I was a young child, one of my greatest fears was that I would be separated from my parents, that I would get lost, we'd go somewhere, and then I'd wander off and I'd never be found. That fear changed as I entered into my teenage years, and I must confess that I am a sinner saved by grace. When I would go to the mall, that was a place that had lots of stores, it usually had a food court, no malls are sadly a thing of the past. But there was a written rule when I was a teenager that my mom would have to be at least 10 plus steps ahead of me. And so the fear of separation didn't exist as much as a teenager for me. But then it came roaring back when I became a dad and mercy entered the picture. The fear changed a little bit. It wasn't me getting lost. It was a fear of what would happen if Mercy got lost. Would she know who to find? Would she find somebody responsible? Would they get us reconnected? That fear became a reality earlier this year when we were at an amusement park, and we were going from one ride to another. And Mercy, if you know her, she tends to get distracted. And so we're supposed to be going one way, and she saw maybe a balloon or a funnel cake and decided to go another way. We get to the ride, and I turn around, ready to get us all in line, and I say, where's Mercy? Knots in my stomach, full-fledged panic, and make sure I don't lose the other kids and leave them with the others, and I run back, like, full speed, running, retracing my steps. Thankfully, only about 15, 30 seconds had passed, and they see this grown man running full speed, not in a race, and they yell, Dad, over here, as they realized I was looking for somebody and Mercy was yelling my name too. We were reunited, um, felt a lot, a lot longer than 15 to 30 seconds, but I'm thankful that we were able to find her so quickly. If you're a parent in here, maybe you've experienced that, or maybe that's a big fear that you have. If you are in here, maybe you've experienced as a child, and you can still remember a time you got lost. So it's terrifying. It was terrifying for Tara, myself, and Mercy. But there's a separation that is far greater than the one that I just shared with you, and it's being separated from God. That is the greatest separation that we should fear the most, being eternally separated from God. As a youth pastor for almost 10 years, I've had lots of conversations with students where they'll come up to me and say, Jeremy, I don't see God. I don't see God working in my life. I don't think he cares about me. I don't feel connected to him. In more recent years, we've seen that increase, and even the statistics are staggering when you look at anxiety amongst young individuals as well as adults, too. And anxiety has a way of separating you off from God and from one another. And so I saw all these statistics coming in um, regarding what happened after COVID, and I wanted to see, is that happening in our group as well? 
is we see a biblical principle that the devil, the enemy, is always trying to isolate us away from God and one another, trying to separate us. And so I wanted to see, is it true, the statistics for Grace Point students? I wanted to reveal these statistics to you. So I asked our high school students to fill in this blank that you'll see on the screen. Anxiety and or depression is a blank for me. And they could answer with major problem, minor problem, or not a problem. It was completely anonymous. They filled it out at the beginning of youth group. And then I revealed the statistics when we got to the lesson time. Remember, these are our students here in Newtown, surrounding area. Here are the results. 32% said that anxiety, depression is a major problem. 56% said that it is a minor problem. And just 12% reported that it is not a problem. So three out of plus three, a little bit more than that out of 10, said that this is a major problem that they're experiencing in life. And then 56% saying it's minor. So almost 9 out of 10 report that anxiety is a battle that they're facing in life. As a youth pastor and youth leader for a long time, these statistics troubled me. And I think they probably trouble you as well. I wonder if I asked all of us, would we have similar numbers as well as we see anxiety plaguing our culture? What I tell my students is that even though you might feel separated, that God is always with you, that there's no place you could go where God's presence isn't with you. But what biblical grounds can I make a claim like that? I don't want to just tell them that without being able to point them to Scripture and show that it's true. And so we're going to look at a passage in Ephesians before we get into Romans that does tell us that there is a separation between God and people. And this is what the text reads. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You need to put your Bible thinking caps on here because there's an observation that we need to make about this text. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. They are believers. And do you notice something about what he says here? Remember that you were... For any of my English people, English, your favorite subject, which is not mine. Um, but you'll notice that where is past tense. Something changed. They were separated. They were alienated. They were strangers. They were without God and had no hope. But something radically changed. This is past tense. What happened that caused them not to be separated anymore? Well, you're going to turn with Roman to Romans chapter 8 to find this life-changing and life-giving hope. So turn to Romans 8. We're going to pick up in verse 31. We're continuing our sermon series entitled Immersed in Grace. And we've heard the last few weeks that Romans 8 is a pinnacle passage in the Bible as we learn about God and his care for us. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see Paul utilize the same literary style he's been using, but he does it even more in this passage, of asking a question and then answering it. And so we're going to see seven questions asked, and they're all going to build on the previous question. And by the last one, question number seven, it's going to feel like a cascade 
of God's kindness as we see the depths of his love for us, his children. So let's see how great our God is and read verse 31 together. This passage reads, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What is Paul referring to? What's the Bible saying when it says these things? And so when we encounter a passage of scripture, we're hopping into Romans 8 here, and we're hopping in the middle of a chapter, and so we need to know context. What was previously stated? It's not the best practice to just open up and read and apply the text. You have to understand the context around it. And so you want to study the word of God. We need to be students of the word of God. And so what is it referring to when it says these things? We have to look back to uncover what are the things that Paul is referring to. And so he's saying that these things, if God is for us, what can be against us? Let's look at chapter eight and uncover some of the truths that we looked at over the last couple weeks. These are the things he's referring to, or some of them. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's verse one of Romans eight. The spirit of God dwells in you, verse nine. We're adopted as children of God, verse 16. We have a wonderful inheritance to look forward to. Verse 17, we have the Holy Spirit interceding for us in our weakness. Verse 26, God works all things for good for those who are called. Verse 28, we're predestined, called, justified, eventually glorified. Verse 30, and that's just a sample. Whew. All right. Lots of awesome and amazing things that God has done in and through Christ in our lives. This is just a sample. I just looked at chapter 8, and I could have listed a whole bunch more. That's why chapter 8 is said to be a pinnacle passage in the Bible. So back to our verse this morning. What shall we say to these things and all the other truths that we uncovered? What shall we say to them? The answer is, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? If all these things are true and then some that I don't have on the screen, who stands a chance against the people of God and our great God? What's the Bible teaching here? This isn't an inconsistency in the scripture. The Bible teaches that you do have adversaries. You have the corrupt world. You have our own flesh that we're waging war against. And you have the evil one who's looking to devour us. All those are true and they're biblical truths that we see in, in the Bible. But what is this text saying? Our adversaries are so small compared to the greatness of our God. Who can stand a chance against our great God. I tell our teens that the devil is a loser because our God is so strong and so powerful. And so our enemies look so tiny compared to the greatness of our God. And so what a wonderful truth that we see here is it's easy for me to get entangled in the trials of life and make them look a lot bigger when in reality, our God is right there in the midst with us. We serve a mighty God, and when, com when comparing him to our adversaries, our adversaries look powerless. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We're reminded in this verse that God the Father gave his very best for us. What's his very best? his perfect son, the holy one, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He was given on our behalf. So here's the logic that Romans 8 is using. 
If God has given us his best, himself, why then would he fail to take care of us the rest of the time? That's very inconsistent. If God gave his best and then neglected us, that doesn't make any sense why he would do that. He, in fact, will give us all we need for godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. So God has given us all the things that you and I need for godliness, to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ. All right, let me pause. There's a teachable moment here. It says, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? There are some people that will even carry the title of pastor that will take this passage out of context. And they'll say, God will graciously give you all things. So if you have enough faith, you might get that Lamborghini. (laughs) And so it's an exaggerated example. But there are people that say, if you have enough faith, God will give you this, this. You just have to have enough faith. What we call that is heresy. Heresy is false teaching. It's against God's word. And so that would be, you might have heard of the prosperity gospel. That is a heresy. Somebody telling you that you can get anything you want if you just have enough faith. That's not biblical truth. What is biblical truth is God's gonna give you everything you need for godliness, to grow in the knowledge of him. A very important truth that we state there with this passage. Lots of people will take that out of context. God knows what's best for your spiritual growth and mine. He's far wiser than if we calculated all of our intelligence and put it together. God is so much wiser. He knows exactly what we need. He takes care of our needs, provides in accordance with his wisdom, and allows us to grow in our knowledge of him. And if I think about it personally, It's often times when I'm most broken that I grow the most. And so it's not when I get the new Lamborghini, right? That's never happened, by the way. But that's not when I grow. It's when I am desperately in need of Jesus to sustain me. And so God provides those opportunities, and it's his grace. Let's see this next question in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who will bring any charge against God's people? The word charge there means to bring serious accusations against someone with a possible connotation of a legal or court context. So think with me for a second. God's standard is perfection and holiness, right? The Bible refers to God as holy, holy, holy. When you see a word repeated three times like that means he has perfected that. And so he is perfectly holy. That's his standard. In order for us to dwell with him, we need to have the same standard. Well, let's put Jeremy on trial. Is Jeremy holy, holy, holy on my own efforts? If I put you on trial, we'd have the same sentencing, right? Guilty before God. We've broken his holiness and his perfection and his standards. And so that means we would, have, uh, we would have 
condemnation or charges brought against us. But here's the reality for those of you who know Jesus. At the moment of salvation, your sin or the charges that would be brought against you are taken as far as the east is from the west. Now, we live on a sphere, so that means if you keep going east, you're going to keep going east. That distance is immeasurable. And so your sin, if you are a child of God, is eradicated, expunged, it's gone. One great song lyric captures this wonderful truth. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So no one can bring a charge against God's elect, his people, his sheep, because God is the one who justifies. Christ's righteousness, remember we said that he's perfect and holy, his righteousness is put on every single believer. So there's no charge that can be brought against anybody that's in Christ, because God is the one who justifies. And if there are no charges against us, it means there's something else that happens too. Look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So if there's no charges brought against us, there's also no condemnation brought against us. Who can condemn God's people? No one, because Christ Jesus took the condemnation on himself for us. He paid your penalty. He paid my penalty. He put the curse on himself, and we see that in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Through Jesus' sacrifice, you and I no longer have any condemnation. I'm talking if you're a child of God, we are a free people. Through his sacrifice, we also have received the Holy Spirit who indwells us, God in us. Again, no condemnation. We're his. And if we're his children, we can no longer be separated from the all-knowing, all-seeing God. And that leads us to our main point this morning. Because there's no condemnation, there's no separation. Because there's no condemnation, there is no separation. In fact, Jesus is not condemning us. He's actually interceding for us. And that word interceding means that he's pleading for us with great urgency and intensity. So instead of Jesus bringing charges against us, he's actually interceding to his Father on our behalf with intensity and urgency. What an awesome Savior. He's paid your debt, but he's still actively involved in bringing your concerns to God the Father on our behalf. Instead of condemnation, we have received salvation by the blood of Christ. Do you remember the passage we looked at in Ephesians 2, Verse 12, I'm going to put this on the screen, but I want to hone in on verse 13. Again, I said it's important to have context, but remember this. It said, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now verse 13, game changer. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near 
by the blood of Christ. Brother and sister in Christ, you're no longer separated. You once were, but you no longer are. You are brought near to the side of God. What is the method that brings somebody near to God? The blood of Jesus. The only cure to separation from God is Jesus' blood. His one-time sacrifice brings all believers who once were separated close to God. Now the question that we have to answer is, we've been brought near to God. Can anything bring us away from God? And so we once were away, we're brought near. Can we be taken away again? That's the question that Romans is going to answer next. Could we possibly be separated from God again? Look at verse 35 and 36 for our answer. Here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Paul quotes Psalm 44 here, and this psalm is a psalm calling for God's deliverance. God, please save us. We are like sheep to be slaughtered. Come and save us. Act, deliver us. Remember, we're looking at Psalm 44. That is in the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. And so this was a longing for God to deliver. And you and I, as people in the New Testament or the church age, we can see that God has provided the means of deliverance through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is saying, Will these things, can these things separate us? Or has God provided the deliverance? You and I have the privilege of knowing that God has provided the deliverance for us. Look at this list with me. He starts out by saying tribulation. That means trouble involving direct suffering. Distress is a set of difficult circumstances. Persecution systematically organizing a program to oppress and harass people. Famine, state of being very hungry, result of necessity, not by choice. Nakedness, the state of being naked or without. Danger, the state of dangerous and threatening circumstances. And sword, the word there is used for cutting or stabbing, which would be those who are martyred for their faith. This list covers it all. It's a great comprehensive list. I think about what our teens shared with us when they took that survey. They were feeling separated from God. Perhaps that would fit into the distress category. But I wonder what situations in life have caused you to feel separated from God. Could those things that come to mind truly separate you from the God who gave himself in your place? Would the sovereign God, sovereign means powerful, He's in control of the universe. He is the one that reigns. Would he really allow something to separate us from himself? Here's another teachable moment. Sometimes the separation that we might feel is self-inflicted. So these teens, some of them, when they share, it might be a sin that they're having to confess before the Lord that's causing them to feel separated. But there's a theological truth that we need to uncover here. I told you earlier that 
the moment that you put faith in Jesus, that you say Jesus is going to follow you, it's an authentic conversion into Christ, your sin is separated from you as far as the east is from the west. That's your past, present, and future sin. You're a child of God. Scripture says you're now alive, you're a new creation. And so you don't have to repay the debt that Jesus already paid. Okay? That's once for all, Scripture says. It's done. But when you sin against God as a child of God, it can cause the feel of separation uh, and disunity between you and God. And so the Bible instructs us that we should confess our sin to God, and that can help to bring unity back to the relationship. So your sin is paid for, but you might be feeling like you are separated from God because you've never gone to the Lord or you've never gone to your brother or sister that you sinned against and received that forgiveness there. And so it's really important principle for you and I when we sin against God to go to the Lord and confess that sin to him. You're already forgiven, but it helps to restore the relationship so you don't feel separated from him. And so just an important truth that I wanted to make sure we uncover there. And remind yourself of 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall anxiety, shall depression, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Let's see the answer, verse 37. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because there's no condemnation, there is no separation. These things could never separate a child of God from God. See, the enemy loves to make us feel like we're being separated, but he always fails in trying to separate us from the love of Christ. Fact from Genesis through Revelation, even in today's day and age, we see that the enemy will attempt to do something against God, against the people of God. But what does God do? He thwarts it, turns it upside down, and uses it for his glory. It's an awesome principle you see throughout the Bible. The enemy intends to devour us. God turns it upside down and somehow brings the miraculous and deliverance, and people get saved through the faithfulness of others. And so, oftentimes, the struggles that are intended for our harm bring us closer to God. It's awesome how God can do this. It advances his kingdom. I think of the word persecution or sword in this list, and it makes me think of an early church father named Tertullian, and he made a statement that always has resonated me as I think of the persecuted church, our brothers and sisters, and he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What is he talking about? A martyr is somebody that gives their life for Christ. And so when they shed their blood for their love for Jesus, it grows the church abundantly. When I hear of a brother or sister who is willing to die for their faith in Jesus, it just spurs me on to say, wow, what am I willing to do for, for Christ? And you see, when a believer gives their life for Jesus, so many other people come to faith because they see the faithfulness of that person. And so Tertullian says, it's the blood of the martyrs that grows the church. And this is why when the church is under persecution, it actually grows and is purified and people really are following Jesus out of necessity, right? They have to because they have nothing else to cling on to. Whereas when the church is not under persecution, we can get caught up in all the pleasance of life. 
I was reading um, a website that I, I follow called Open Doors USA, and they put out a list of the most persecuted nations. And I found a story I wanted to share just to show that sword and persecution cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And it's a story in Nigeria. And in Nigeria, on average, a believer dies every two hours. When you look at the statistics, you could say a believer dies every two hours each year in Nigeria. And this is an article that I want to read. It's a quote. It says this. There are countless stories behind the statistics. Each person killed was a mom, dad, brother, sister, friend, and colleague. Each one leaves behind a community that mourns. This should be enough to break the church in Nigeria. The goal of the enemy is to defeat God's church at every turn. It would be easy to assume that darkness is winning in Nigeria, but that assumption would be a mistake. The church in Nigeria and across sub-Saharan Africa is growing and resilient. Courageous Christians are ensuring the gospels lived out even in the difficult circumstances. Ayuba, the young man who lost his father, is a perfect example of this truth. He was consumed with rage because of his dad's murder. He wanted nothing except revenge, but he found healing and hope at Open Door Shalom Center, a trauma center in Nigeria. He summed up what he learned in a single word, forgiveness. He says with a smile, I decided to let go of my anger and have peace. I learned to leave everything at the feet of Jesus. And so what was meant for evil, God thwarted the enemy's attack and used it for good. And we see that this young man is now a testimony to all of us of faithfulness in God even in hard times. So these things, they don't separate us. In fact, the Bible says that we are conquerors of them through Christ who loves us. The word conquer in Greek means to be completely and overwhelmingly victorious. The enemy intends to hurt us, but through Christ, we have absolute and overwhelming victory. It's all through him who loved us. It's through Christ's love for us that we have the victory. So none of these things in that list could separate us from the love of God in Christ. In case you and I don't understand that truth, the Bible is going to emphasize it one more time in real dramatic fashion. So I'm going to do my best to read this at VBS, I'm going to be acting up here, so this is actually a good you know, rehearsal for me here. But listen to these words, verse 38 and 39. If you don't have this memorized, it might be a good thing to do. This is what the text reads. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow. So in case we didn't understand the previous list, Paul gives us another list, and this one is all-encompassing. I want to brainstorm. We've been given two lists, and so I want your help. I was trying to think about this, and I'm like, I'm just one person, so I'm going to ask all of you. Let's try to name something that's not included in either one of those lists, okay? So go ahead and just brainstorm. Oh, wow, crickets. There's nothing. Everything is included in all of creation. 
Nothing can separate you or I, if we are a child of God, from his love. What an awesome truth that you and I have been given here in the Bible. There have been some very difficult moments in my life. There are difficult moments that you all have experienced. Maybe you're experiencing now or you're going to experience yet to come. And so to know this truth going into those trials can change everything. We trust that God's word is true. We need to trust that these experiences, these difficulties, they could never separate us from the love of Christ. So think of persecution. We looked at Nigeria, but guess what? Persecution's knocking on our door. That could never separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can. So what's it mean for us today? What are our takeaways to process throughout this week? For the unbeliever, the devil would love to make you think you're fine. You're good. You got it all covered. That's simply not the truth. So if you're in here and you do not know Christ, I want to talk to you. The Bible teaches that you are separated from God right now. That's your reality. But it does not have to stay that way. If you put your faith and trust in Christ. God is in the industry of redeeming people. So if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you say, I am a sinner. I've fallen short of your holy standard. Holy, 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 that's not me. I'm gonna trust in that Jesus took my place, paid my debt, has given me his righteousness. And you say you're gonna follow Jesus. It's not just a cognitive, I believe in Jesus. It is an absolute trust. I'm going to follow Jesus with my life. There's no turning back. You believe that he really went to the cross, really died, and really rose again. You are saved. That means you're no longer separated. That means God has drawn you close to himself. And so if you're in this room and you haven't put faith in Jesus, I'm going to encourage you to talk with God or talk with one of us. We'll have the prayer team up here at the end of our service. Talk with one of us. If you have a friend that you know knows Jesus, talk with them. Talk with one of our elders. The biggest decision you will ever make in life, and there are some big ones, is are you going to follow Jesus? Hands down, the biggest decision that we all have to answer. Will you follow Jesus? What about for those of us who know Christ? The devil wants you to think that you're still condemned and that you're separated from Christ. Let me tell you, that's simply not true. So let me talk with you. The enemy wants to attack our minds and our hearts, making us think God doesn't care that we're separated. But remember, there's nothing in all of creation that could ever separate you from the love of God. I think back to the fear that I had when mercy went missing for the brief moment. It was absolutely terrifying. That was Jeremy's situation with God so much worse because we're talking about separated from God, right? But it's no longer the case. God has brought us near to him. We can cling to him. We can share our hearts with him because we're right by his side. What a joy. You don't have to fear. You can proclaim with boldness the goodness of God. Many of us, including myself, have loved ones who aren't in that situation, They are separated from God. 
And so I want to give a challenge to us as we consider those people. Maybe the Lord brought somebody to your mind right away when I said that. As you leave, you're going to be able to grab a bookmark that has those last two verses in Romans 8. And you can think of me reading it in dramatic fashion. But on the back of it, it's blank. What I want you to do, read the front of it, because that's your situation. But on the back, I want you to write the name and a prayer to God of somebody that you're going to pray for daily that God would save their life. And so your case, your situation, if you're a child of God, you're no longer separated. But the person you're going to pray for currently is. We need to pray that God will save that person's soul. And I'll say it's not your responsibility to do that. You can't. But it is your responsibility to share Christ with them and to pray for them. God's the one who's going to bring the fruit and salvation. But you and I need to be a praying people. Can you imagine if all of us were doing that? God loves to answer prayer, especially prayers that are in accordance with his will. And so we need to be praying for the salvation of those people and then tell them about Jesus. Tell them about the hope that you and I have in Christ. So take one of those bookmarks, write a little prayer to God, and then each day pray for that person and then tell me, update me as you see God working in their hearts. Remember, because there's no condemnation, there is no separation. If you're a child of God, he has brought you near. You are right by his side. And nothing in all of creation could ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful for the book of Romans. We're so grateful for the Bible that you've given us your truth that many faithful men and women have carried this truth that we could even have access to it today. We are so grateful as we consider the difficulties in life, the struggles. We consider that the enemy is making us think we're separated from you. I pray that we would cling to these truths, that there is nothing that could ever separate you from us as we are your children so I pray that these truths would ring in our hearts and our minds. And then I pray for the unbelievers, the un any unbelievers in this room, that they would consider the biggest decision, will they follow you? And I pray that they would boldly follow you, that they would ask the questions, that they would repent of their sin, turn to you, trust in you, and receive the wonderful gift of salvation through Jesus' blood. And then, Lord, I pray for us who are following you, that you might give us boldness as we proclaim your goodness, your kindness to a world that desperately needs to hear it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.